All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Everyone's recording. We're all clear on that, right? (laughs) I'm really nervous. I don't know I'm why. sorry. Uh, Jen and mine's anxiety has transferred itself to Cambridge. <laughs> Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 230 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and the perimenopausal brain fog is real. The other day, got in the shower, still had my knickers on. Lovely stuff. <laughs> I've done that with a bra once. I was like, why is my bottom half so heavy? Oh, <laughs> that's exactly that. Why, why, does, why does it feel so weird? Yeah, so I'm looking forward to what else is in store as this <laughs> continues. Also, who the fuck are you two? <laughs> I might have to put a big sign on the shower door now. Are you naked? Are you fully nude? <laughs> I've become a never nude by accident. Oh my goodness. This is terrifying. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm wearing cut-off jean shorts. I'm not. <laughs> and she is in the shower. It's weird. <laughs> I went to a pub at the weekend and I watched several people all walk into a beam that had Mind Your Head painted on it. <laughs> it made me wonder if they should just paint something else onto those beams. Well, literally anything else, like free beer yeah. or you just take a picture of tits or something so people would actually <laughs> notice that they were about... I say people... It was all men, but men are at an unfair disadvantage here. In that they're as the taller. taller yeah. Just stick a picture of t- that was very nineteen nineties lads mag there, had a <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> did it look painful? It did look painful. One of them looked almost concussed, <laughs> I would say, but I don't know how heavy how heavily he'd been drinking beforehand. 
Yeah. <laughs> what happened to your head, mate? I walked into some concrete tits. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> I've got two black eyes and I'll tell you why. I'm Jen Offord and I'm a dog auntie. Congratulations, Jen. Ah. It's very exciting. My brother got a little puppy, a little Boston Terrier called Jacob, and I went and met it on Friday night. They are My cute. sister has a Boston Terrier. Looks like Rami Malek. <laughs> <laughs> they always look really surprised or like someone stuck their finger up their bottom. Huh? He always looks like he's pondering the nature of entire existence. <laughs> My sister's dog. There's so much going on in his face. My brother did say to me, I said, oh, can I pick him up? He said, yeah, of course you can. You've got to sort of hold him like, you know, some specific way. You have to hold little puppies, apparently. And he said, you're probably used to holding female dogs, as am I. What I will say is, I always forget with Jacob that he's a male dog. And every time I pick him up, I get a handful of dog dick. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you might get a handful of dog dick. Don't be alarmed. You cannot pick up the rats without getting like a good handful of balls because they're like 20% balls. So Are you they? just kind of get used to it. Yeah, yeah. They look like they've got two inflated whoopee cushions on their behind. It's cute though. They look like little little tiny fairy pink torpedoes. It's adorable. I was about to say next time I come around I'll have to have a look and then I thought, what's wrong with you? <laughs> have a stroke. They're so soft. <laughs> hamsters are very similar. Hamsters have whapping great testicles. Yeah. I think they could sit on a hard surface for hours and not notice because they've just got built in cushioning. Who knew? How long are we into this podcast <laughs> and we've already talked about tits and balls? What else is on the agenda? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's move on. Coming up, I chat to Helen Barnard, Associate Director of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and Director of Research and Policy at Pro Bono Economics about perceptions of poverty. I'm chatting with Claudia Brewster, Course Leader of Graphic Design, Creative Advertising and Visual Communication at the University of Gloucestershire and one of her second year students, Siobhan Smith, about the posters they've been designing for the March for Freedom for Afghan Women and Girls, which is taking place in London on Sunday the 27th of November. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm boycotting Qatar. Fair enough. Thank you. And in Rated or Dated, Selig, Danson. Gutenberg. Did a more 80s trio ever exist, we ponder, as we watch 1987's Three Men and a Baby. But first, GOP, IAC and CTD. OMFG. <laughs> it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. No, not that one. Although, Mick? Later, Hannah. Later. In the interim, shall we talk about the US midterms? Yes, which happened last week after nearly two years of catastrophizing by the media and turned out to be, checks notes, pretty calm and normal. Oh. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, the committee hearings about the January the 6th insurrection, years of shouting at each other about voter suppression and election rigging and a near perpetual doom scroll about the future of US politics resulted in, checks notes... Everything looking pretty similar to how it did before the election. Right. OK, what does this mean? Well, counting is still going on in some states. But what we do know is that the Democrats will retain control of the Senate. That's good. The Republicans look likely to take the House. Boo, but the red wave, <laughs> But the red wave that was predicted did not arrive. Oh, that's good. Now, what this means for the 2024 election is, in the interest of learning something from the past week, I'm going to say it tells us... Who the fuck knows? (laughs) 
But some elements of the Republican Party seem keen to finally distance themselves from Trump. Do you think they'd build a wall, Hannah? (laughs) It's quite something when you consider how far into the desert we have had to trek to find their line in the sand. Yep. According to Senator Josh Hawley, do I need to explain who he is? You do, yes, please. Okay, Josh Hawley, he's quite new to this, or he was certainly very new to this. When the January the 6th riots happened at the Capitol, he was photographed walking in, like, giving the thumbs up to them. Oh, okay. He sounds he, he is, sounds like a good person. He is very Trumpy. Right. Yeah. Well, according to him, the GOP is dead and needs to be buried to make way for something new. Okay. A nice memorial garden, maybe. <laughs> and Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks, who actually spoke at the rally that morphed into the riot at the Capitol building in January 2021, he's come out against Trump being the 2024 GOP nominee. Because loads of them had clearly been thinking it, but not said it, right? Because they were worried that if they said it, they wouldn't retain their seat in this election Mm. yes mickey well done you spotted their plan it wasn't that cunning was it (laughs) some people are sticking to the script though in alaska things don't look great for sarah palin do you remember her oh my god how is she still at this (laughs) she blamed the cockamimi i mean i've got to say i love that word but she blamed the cockamimi ranked choice voting system and the quote dark dysfunctional gop machine That makes it sound like a vending machine that won't give you your Mars bar. And outside a ballot counting centre in Maricopa County, Arizona, Carrie Lake supporters protested shouting, quote, We the people are requesting the military to step in and redo our election. It was a fake. Wow. I mean, Mm. that is that is one. That's a long chant. I'm surprised they managed to remember (laughs) it all. But two, also bullshit. (laughs) Maricopa County, for anyone who is wondering, was the subject of a publicly funded and controversial investigation into the election fraud alleged by Trump and his supporters in 2020. The audit, which was completed in September 2021, found checks notes no evidence to support claims of significant <laughs> election irregularities and reveal Biden's margin of victory in the state to actually be 360 votes larger than first thought. That has massively backfired on them, hasn't it? It has. Mm, How has Trump good. responded to the results? Well, given that he started going off about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is considered his main rival to stand as the 2024 Republican candidate, I'm going to leave you to decide for yourself. DeSantis, who is 44, which makes him a teenager in US political (laughs) terms, won re-election in a landslide last Tuesday. Would he make a better president than Trump? I don't know. Would a shoe make a better breakfast than an umbrella? You decide. (laughs) President Joe Biden has said he feels good about the election results and is looking forward to the next couple of years. Is he excited about that memorial garden? (laughs) (laughs) Talk of him standing in the next election has increased. And why not? I mean, he's only going to be 80 next (laughs) week. Nancy Pelosi is supporting him and she's been alive since before Pearl Harbour. Wowzers. So if we can't really get excited about the next election race being between an octogenarian and a man who is 0.03% less appalling than Trump, (laughs) what hope can we grasp from the election results? Well... Supporters in several states signalled their support for reproductive rights, with California, Michigan and Vermont enshrining lasting protection in their state constitutions. Yes. And in Kentucky, an anti-abortion measure was rejected. Oh, that's 
in Kentucky. That is excellent. Mm, isn't it? Yeah, that is really good. Okay, so, you know, everything's just chilling out in America now, right? <laughs> it certainly seems a little bit quieter than it has been of late. I don't think Joe's ready to cope with any drama, to be honest with you. He doesn't look stable <laughs> enough. So I initially thought I might bring us back to the UK and, as Hannah hinted up at the top, talk about how being on I'm a Celebrity appears to be working for Hat Mancock. As pal of the show, comedian and PR expert Vic Slayton said on What's Left of Twitter, I totally get why people love the idea of Hancock eating kangaroo balls, but I'm a celeb done with performative grace and grit can turn a heel into a face quicker than any other PR strategy, while ITV profit from our calls. And he's not a panto villain. His decisions cost lives. I mean, well cracking, said, Mitch. she's yeah. nailed it, yeah. And that is absolutely playing out. Ditto for Sean Walsh, who it must be remembered is a gaslighting weasel of a man. Boy George, Chris Moyles, Mike Tyndall are also, to put it euphemistically, not great. Can they just crown Jill Scott or the Scorpion and be done with it? Also, more people voted for Mancock to do one Bush Tucker trial than voted for Rishi Sunat to be Prime Minister. Sorry, Rashid Sanook to be Prime Minister. <laughs> I tell you what, the great in Great Britain continues to mock us, as do the people supposedly in charge. And, you know, really, I'm kind of bored by how fucking predictably awful it all is. And I am finding fresh perspectives tricky to find. Fair enough. Uh, You say that, Hannah, not that the rest of the world is any (laughs) less depressing. I know Jen's talking about FIFA ignoring the homophobic elephant in the stadiums built by migrant slaves in Qatar in Jenny off the blocks later. So I'm going to look at Iran, where a Tehran court has issued the first death sentence to a person arrested for taking part in the protests that have engulfed the country. Several human rights groups are warning of hasty executions of huge numbers. And official info is sketchy because Iran. Mm. But what is clear is Iran's leaders have portrayed the anti-government protests as, quote, riots instigated by foreign enemies as opposed to a people pushing back against an oppressive regime following the death in police custody of 22-year-old Marsa Amini, accused of wearing the hijab incorrectly. Judiciary Chief Golam Hossein Masseni Ajay has warned that rioters could be charged with muharabe, which means enmity against God, efsad filaz, which means corruption on earth, and bagi, armed rebellion, all of which can carry the death penalty in Iran's Sharia-based legal system. I've no idea whether you pronounced any of that correctly, Mickey, but I want to commend your effort. Thanks very much. I hope I haven't committed an enmity against God. Actually, I don't (laughs) care. Let's talk about Stunning and Brave, though. Seriously, actually, Stunning and Brave. The (laughs) protests continue. I have seen so much footage of women defiantly not wearing their headscarves and arguing with often physically violent clerics about their right to do so, about their right to do what they want to do. Now, the EU is set to slap some more sanctions on Iran over the protest crackdown later today, that's Monday, and we can all help by continuing to shine a light on what's happening in Iran by sharing Iranian people's social media posts and amplifying their voices. Yes, indeed. It's rank, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's just awful. I mean, but it is a bit like choose your fucking awful at the moment when you look at the world, isn't it? Yeah. Well, do you want some good news? Oh, yes, please. As ever, I have managed to unearth some. What a fucking hero. Stunning and brave as always, Dunleavy. <laughs> Delving amid the shit to find the... What do you find in shit? 
heroin pessaries? To find the heroin pessaries <laughs> of good news. <laughs> so, female composers are being rescued from obscurity thanks to a new record label dedicated to their work. I can only assume they're going to be delighted that we've compared this to heroin pessaries. <laughs> I think most of them are dead. You'll be all right. Now you need to congratulate me for my pronunciation. I'm not doing it until you've actually pronounced uh-huh. it. Le Bois et Pépites, which translates to The Jewel Box, was founded by Heloise Lazati. Lazati, who is French, as you can tell, <laughs> began promoting the forgotten work of women at the Elle's Women's Composers Festival and via her YouTube channels, when it occurred to her how few pieces composed by women she'd been assigned in 30 years of playing the cello. Many of the label's composers have never been recorded. Research by the charity Don, or Women in Music, found that 5% of the 15,000 works performed by orchestras in the 2020-2021 season were composed by women. A whole 5%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm guessing that that's, you know, that figure, that 15,000 is quite low because 2021 probably didn't have as much music in it as a season yeah, as others point. did. But I wouldn't imagine that that 5% figure gets any bigger. Agree. Luzzatti said, how could I have spent so many years without ever having played a piece composed by a woman? Too few works by women are published and therefore... Even fewer recorded. Well done, that woman, mm-hmm. for, you know, noticing and making a change, doing something that will cause real change. But also it's so telling that she's literally going, how have I spent so many years doing this? And it's just because, you, you know, it's the women composers are not taught in music schools. They're yeah. just ignored. So it's the norm. And mm-hmm. you don't notice things when they're the norm. It's a lot harder to notice them. So, you know, big props to her. Yeah. I can remember in school somebody asking it, it wasn't me why all the composers were men mm-hmm. can't remember for the life of me what the answer was so no doubt it was a load of bullshit too much effort for the lady brain yeah or made their wombs explode or something what kind of notes do you think are involved when our wombs do explode <laughs> yeah bassy <laughs> I reckon <laughs> more news next week well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week where any good news is always too good to be true, isn't it? Rhetorical. Uh, that, that's <laughs> yeah, definitely rhetorical. Sorry. <laughs> Let's start with the good news. Finally, finally, an average female car crash test dummy has been developed. Spearheaded by Dr. Astrid Linder, Director of Traffic Safety at the Swedish National Road and Transport Research Institute, a team of Swedish engineers has developed the first dummy, or to use the more technical term, seat evaluation tool, (laughs) designed on the body of the average woman. I like the way they've improved her job title, even though she's not actually a real person. I refer you, as I often do in Sexism of the Week, to Caroline Criado Perez's excellent book, Invisible Women, in which she explains how much less safe cars are for women. In brief, if a woman is in a car crash, she is 17% more likely to die than a man in the same crash. CCP states that a woman is also 47% more likely to be seriously injured. Although after Invisible Women was published, a further study came out in 2019, which put the increased risk of serious injury and death for women at 73%. Fucking hell. Yeah. If you're wondering what car manufacturers have been using to test safety measures in cars for women, um, they've not really. 
The dummy sometimes used as a proxy for women is a scaled-down version of the male one. As we know, the female body is not merely a scaled-down version of the male one. Just again for those at the back. We are not just little men. Take the pelvis, for example. Please, take my pelvis. Sorry. Take the pelvis, for example. The female pelvis has a wider, shorter sacrum, a shorter, straighter coccyx, and a much wider angle at the base. All of which means the seatbelt designed to catch on the pelvic bones of the default male may not catch on the pelvic bones of a female crash victim, but instead ride up and crush her internal organs. Nice. Mmm. Delicious soupy organs. And you can add to that shit show of not taking women into account that they don't even test the scale down male dummy in the driver's seat. <laughs> Just the passenger seat. <laughs> Women, by the way, represent about half of all drivers. I'm guessing you fucking knew that. So, hooray for this new dummy, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Long time coming, much needed, etc., etc. If only it was being used in the safety testing. Because here's the rub. It's not. It's just not. Currently, there is no legal requirement for car safety tests for rear impact collisions to be carried out on anything other than the average man. You can see that this is a bias, said Chart Krusinger, who <laughs> oh, I'd like to know what other sort of state in the bleeding obviously does <laughs> for yeah. newspapers. You can see that it is morning when he opens his curtains. <laughs> totally. He is a specialist in the field for Toyota in Europe. I mean, worth his weight in gold. <laughs> when all the men in the meetings decide, they tend to look to their feet and say, this is it. I would never say that anybody does it intentionally, but it's just the mere fact that it's typically a male decision, and that's why we do not have average female dummies. Let's see what Dr Linda had to say, because we love her. And she said, My hope for the future is that the safety of vehicles will be assessed for both parts of the population. Oh, it's a dream we can all get behind, right? I mean, it really makes you wonder, you know, why somebody isn't, even at the other end, wondering when they actually see the victims of car crashes, why is it women that are more badly injured? Why somebody isn't thinking of that? It's probably the women doctors who notice this, Hannah, and then they're not taken as seriously anyway. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you think actually anything that would make women in safer in the country, you know, is going to be less of a drain on the National Health Service. Is there right? anything we can do that means that women won't have, like, soup for internal organs <laughs> yeah. after a car crash? Is there anything we could do? Just something quite small, really, when you think about it. I think Dr. Linda sounds like she's she's pushy in all of the best ways, so maybe she'll make it happen. Mm, I hope so. Me too. I'm joined by Helen Barnard, Associate Director of the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and Director of Research and Policy at Pro Bono Economics. Hello, Helen. How are you today? Hello, I am great. Thank you. So the work you do at both of those organisations is aimed at driving change and improving living conditions and well-being and alleviating poverty, which is what you're here to talk to us about today. Can you please tell me a little bit more about the work you do at at both of those organisations? You've really nailed it in terms of the focus of the two. So Joseph Roundtree Foundation, uh, it was set up by the Roundtree family. And it was set up to further their interests in combating what they called social evils. And our view is that poverty is one of the biggest ones, those at the moment. And it's also at the root of an awful lot of other things. One of the reasons that I keep circling back to poverty is almost any other social or economic issue Mm. is being made worse by having high levels of poverty. 
So at Joseph Andrew Foundation, we do a whole load of things to try and drive social change. So we do research and analysis. We do policy development. So we look for what are the solutions. We work with people on the ground to try out solutions. And we also do a lot of work with other organisations and with people who are in poverty to work in partnership to develop what is the story that they think needs to be told and what do they think would work to combat the things that they're living through. And then for pro bono economics, uh, the focus of that organisation is around civil societies, supporting charities and well-being. We do a lot of work with individual charities to help them evaluate what they do, understand what their impact is and how to increase it. And we've also been running a commission on civil society. So looking at the role of civil society in our economy and our communities and really asking what is it that could be done to unleash the full potential of civil society? What's holding back charities in the social sector from doing even more? How can we make the next decade a kind of stellar decade for the impact charities can have on the country? I am often on this podcast making bold assertions about how it makes no economic sense to take money from people who actually need to spend it and put it in the banks of people who don't need to spend it. Am I talking out of my arse or would you say that is broadly speaking a sensible assertion to make? So I think when we're looking at what the government does, you can kind of look at it. There are lots of different bits of the state and of the system and they're all intended to do different things. So what you need to do is look at, is it doing what it's supposed to? Is it doing it in the most efficient way possible? Are there any unintended consequences of what it's doing? So if you take the benefit system, you know, the role of the benefit system is to do a few things. It's supposed to be there to be a lifeline. So when life gets tough, which it does for most of us at different points. So when you lose your job or your partner gets cancer or your family breaks up and you have to start again, we all need to be able to rely on something that will kind of keep our heads above water while we get our lives sorted. It's also there to support people who are not able to work at all or not able to work full time, either for a short period or a long period, whether that's because you know, you're caring for a young child or you are managing a health condition or you're disabled. Or, of course, at the end of your life when you are a pension age. So it's there to some extent to insure us against risks. We can't mm. kind of save up enough to insure us against all those risks. So it's an expression of the fact that we are going to commit to one another that we will help each other out. and We do that through the state. So I think the question we need to ask with benefits is, is it doing those things correctly? And is it causing additional problems by the way it's doing it? And I think, you know, at the moment, when you see a stat like more than four in 10 people on universal credit are food insecure, so are not able to afford to eat properly and cover the essentials, it is really clear the benefit system isn't doing everything it should. I think on taxes, you know, the role of taxes is to probably do a couple of things. One is just to raise the money that we need to spend on all this stuff we want. And the other is to incentivize good behavior of different kinds in individuals and in companies. So you have your basic taxes to raise money, and then you also have additional taxes, you know, traditionally on alcohol, tobacco, and so on, to try and reduce those harmful behaviors. More and more on carbon and some of these kind of newer things. So I think when we're looking at the kind of tax burden on companies, I think for me, there's always a couple of things to think about. One is, is the tax being raised in a sensible way? 
which doesn't motivate them to have weird business structures to get around it. Are we raising the right amount of tax? And are we raising tax in a way that could damage growth, which we do need? Mm. And I think you have to balance those different things. And I think there is also running through this, isn't there? There's a fairness argument. Yes. So for a lot of people emotionally, as well as rationally, it's just not fair if very big rich companies are able to get out of paying a reasonable amount of tax, but you and I can't. So the governments always have to think about, is it going to feel broadly fair to people? Because people react incredibly badly to things that they don't perceive as fair. It's always interesting when you talk to people from different parts of the political spectrum about what your starting point is. So if you start from the idea that there is existing wealth in our society and there is wealth generating activities in our society, from one bit of the political spectrum, people will often view that wealth generation as the result of hard work, talent and all the rest of it. And therefore, the kind of starting point is people should get to keep as much of what they generate as possible, because partly they view, people view that as fair and mm. partly it will motivate more wealth generation, which is good for the country. On the flip side, you can take the view that actually people don't generate wealth in a vacuum and who gets to do that wealth generation and who gets to benefit is deeply unequal for reasons that have nothing to do with hard work or talent, reasons that have to do with structural inequality in our society. And luck, if you're in the right place at the right time, if you happen to catch a break, do you know what I mean? Like it's, And it is easier for some people to catch a break than others because some people are inherently in the right place at the right time because of the school they went yeah. to or the, the access they have to other people. Absolutely. And that latter point is why I always hesitate over the word luck because luck implies it's somehow random and it can't be predicted and it just comes along. I mean, luck exists, people, stuff does come along. But actually, if you've grown up in a family which has been financially secure, which has been emotionally positive, you've had a good education, you've got connections and networks, of course, you know, you might have worked hard, but your hard work is going to take you so much further than the hard work of your friend down the road who has grown up in a house where there was never enough to eat and it was cold and the parents were incredibly stressed all the time and the school they went to was not very good and all the rest of it. It lets us off the hook if you say it's luck because it implies that we have not somehow created Mm. structural inequality which enables some people to get ahead and holds others back. And it's therefore changeable. If we talk about luck, it kind of implies that there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas if you focus on the structures... You know, we designed it this way. We can redesign it. I want to talk to you about perceptions of poverty. So in my days as a civil servant, I worked at DEC and I was part of the secretariat for the late great Professor Sir John Hills's Fuel Poverty Review. Some accusations were levelled against the department that they were sort of messing with the definition of fuel poverty in order to exclude more people from it so that they could meet this target that they had to eradicate fuel poverty because it was growing, not shrinking. But John had this sort of argument that you have to look at it as a relative problem in order to find the people who are most in need. And I was really shocked when I was looking at the index of multiple deprivation and poverty indicators and things like you don't have the internet or you can't afford to go on holiday once a year. 
And there is this sort of rhetoric that you hear from people. You've got a computer, how can you be poor? You've got a mobile phone, how can you be poor? I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about why experts look at poverty in this way. It's a really interesting question. One of the things I looked at in the book I've written about poverty was about this issue of well, how, how do you define it? And it's partly because we have had years now of this pretty arid debate about how you measure poverty and quite often it is used as a distraction from actually doing anything about it. I looked into it and I was looking at some of the research that's been done across history and in different countries and I think what's really interesting is that the essence of what constitutes a decent life where you aren't trapped in poverty I think is remarkably stable across history and geography. So the things that come up again and again when you talk to people, when you do research, so people will talk about having a secure, healthy home to live in, steady, rewarding work, being able to give your children a good start in life, having the skills to thrive, having, you know, reasonable mental, physical health and health care. So the kind of material conditions of just having a decent life. But actually what's also interesting is that the non-material side of poverty is often as important to people as the material. So the idea of feeling that you are respected, that you have dignity, that you're part of your society, because people in poverty talk really passionately about the humiliation that they feel, the fear they face, the sense of being excluded. And that comes back to what you're saying about, you know, why do we think that poverty is inherently relative? Because it's about... Do you have the resources to live what is considered a normal life in your society? And as I said, the kind of the the building blocks of that are very stable. But actually, exactly what that means varies from society to society and over history. So when you're looking at international poverty, there is one particular index people use. And one of the components is, does your home have a dirt floor? And how close do you live to a source of clean water? And that's because in many of the countries that that particular index is trying to look at, lots of people don't have those things. And it's a real indicator of whether you are living what people in that country consider to be a normal life. Now, obviously, you apply that to this country. It gives you no useful information at all because those just aren't things. If you look, take a kind of uh, UK historical question, if you think about if somebody can't afford to have a fridge or have their fridge turned on, we would see that as being a fairly good indication that they are not okay, But that wouldn't be the case 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's because 50 or 60 years ago, most people didn't have fridges. And therefore, the whole society was arranged for people who didn't have fridges. Whereas now, if you don't have a fridge, you can't keep stuff cold. So instead of buying a big four pinter of milk, you have to buy a pint of milk every Mm -hmm. day or every other day. That is vastly more expensive than buying your full pinter. So if you don't have the kind of basic building blocks of what how people in your society live, life will become more expensive and you'll be excluded from normal life. Mobile phones are another really obvious one. Mm. If you don't have a mobile phone and you can't check the internet, you won't be able to claim benefits very easily because benefits are online. You won't be able to update your work coach with your job search history so you could get sanctioned. You won't be able to get the best deals. You won't be able to shop around and work out that Aldi's got this on sale this week, so you go there, whereas last week it was little. You won't be able to find a job 
So these days, our society is arranged for people who have mobile phones. If you don't have one, you're going to be shut out from social activities, from economics, and actually you won't be able to make your money stretch in the way you need to. That's one of the most unfair things, isn't it? That you have this kind of like economies of scale situation, don't you? So I don't know, for example, I'm really into sewing at the moment, right? This is a this is a new hobby that I've taken up, uh, which in itself is a massive luxury because it's expensive. But if I'm on this website and it's like, you know, if you spend X amount, you get free postage. I'm like, well, if I get all my stuff now, then I won't have to pay postage twice. But that obviously depends on me having enough money to meet that threshold. If I didn't, and I had to do it like in a more piecemeal way, I'd be paying that extra five pounds every time I shopped. And, you know, like paying your utilities bills, if you pay by direct debit, it's a huge advantage in terms of the tariffs you can get. But if you're on a prepayment meter, you pay a massive premium for that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a name for that. So the poverty premium. Yes. There's a a whole load of research on this that Mm. people have quantified it and essentially found that people on low incomes on average, are paying several hundred pounds more per year for goods and services than richer people buying the exact same stuff. And I mean, you can see it most exaggeratedly in the housing market, can't you? Where for many, many years, in terms of your monthly outgoings, Mm. it is far cheaper to own your home with a mortgage and pay the mortgage than it is to rent. Now, obviously, we know that things are going very wrong for people with mortgages at the moment. But it's still, it's one of those kind of weird things. If you're rich enough to be able to afford a deposit and can pass the credit checks, you can then pay less per month for your home than somebody who is too poor to buy and is therefore having to pay more for their home. And, it, you know, it makes no sense. And then also, I suppose, the more money you have for your deposit, the better deal you get on a mortgage. So the lower your interest rate is. It's kind yeah. of endless, isn't it? It just Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And student loans is another one. Yeah. So if you're rich enough to pay your student loan off early uh, or never have to take one, you will obviously be financially far better off than if you're on a lower income and therefore keep having to pay it off until it expires in 30 years or whatever. You know, you're effectively being taxed because it is really just a tax. Mm. You, are, you are effectively almost deliberately taxing poorer people more than richer people. It's extraordinary. The Joseph Roundtree Foundation has been doing some work on challenging perceptions of poverty, haven't you? Could you tell me a little bit about that? We've had some quite high profile people campaigning in particular for free school meals recently. So obviously Marcus Rashford is the Jesus, basically, that we've all come to know and love. And this week, Zayn Malik, who, if you're cool like me, you may know, used to be a member of One Direction, talking about their experiences as young people, you know, living in a sort of food insecure situation. Do you think that's helping to change perceptions? Yeah, I absolutely do think it's helpful. So we've been looking for several years at how poverty is portrayed in the media and in public debate. And certainly when you go back a few years to the in kind of early 2010s, and even before that, actually, it started under the previous Labour government, there was an incredibly destructive, judgmental, dismissive way of talking about people in poverty. You know, that was bad, obviously, from the point of view of it's it's just inaccurate and it got in the way of doing things. But actually, when we spent time talking to people in poverty, what you also realise is that hearing essentially yourself talked about in those terms 
has a really serious emotional impact. So one of the things that I looked at in the book was I've got a chapter all about stigma and shame. And there's some really interesting, disturbing research done about the different kinds of shame people feel and how that's related to the experience of poverty. One of the things I found out when I was researching it was that experiencing shame over a long period of time in a sustained way has physiological effects on your body. So people literally, it affects your immune system and your blood pressure and your heart and so on. And it's one of the things I remember when we were first doing some research around destitution and people having to rely on charity and food banks. The thing that struck me most powerfully, aside from the material stuff, was people saying how humiliating they found it, even though the people doing that was lovely. Having to go and ask strangers for toilet paper because you can't afford it is, you know, the the emotional impact of that is just horrendous. And seeing stories where you are being described as a skiver and you see particular groups, it plays out. So in the book, I kind of talk about the way that when you talk to disabled people who are half of everyone in poverty, by the way, is someone who's disabled or lives with someone who is Mm. just terrible. Anyway, you talk to disabled people and they feel the kind of the broad shame of not being able to make ends meet, um, not being able to do what other people do. But then there is also judgment and discrimination and people being essentially thought to be malingering in some way. It's the kind of they're not really disabled. So people feel they're being judged for that. Single parents feel they are being judged for their sexual history. That in some way being a single parent means that you have kind of behaved badly in the past. People who are out of work feel they're being judged for being lazy, even though people lose their jobs. You know, that's Mm. how it is. So that sense of always being judged and always being spoken about and thought about as somebody who is less than others, that for many people is as damaging as being hungry and cold. We've touched on the book a couple of times. So I did just want to talk about that a little bit more. You've got a book out at the moment called Once, which is part of a series, Giants, a new beverage report. Can you tell me a little bit more about it, please? So this year is the 80th anniversary of the Beverage Report being published, which is essentially was the foundation for the modern welfare state, the Social Security, the NHS, education and so on. So what the book does is say, okay, we've had this thing for 80 years. Beverage framed it as saying there are these five giants that need to be slain to achieve progress. So Mm. want, which is poverty, disease, ignorance, squalor and idleness. So what I've done is say, okay, let's have a look. How well are we doing? You know, has it achieved what it should have done? Are these giants still around? If so, what do they look like? So you've kind of got the first part of the book is really saying, what is poverty? So what we talked about earlier and who's in it now? So it's a kind of stories and statistics and it paints a picture of who's trapped in want now and why. So what are the things that trap people in that situation? And then I've looked at how poverty is so deeply intertwined with gender inequality, with racial injustice, with discrimination against disabled people and how those things trap people in even more kind of serious situations. And then I've looked at solutions. So it's not all depressing. It's also saying there's so much we can do if we rethink our social security system, if we redesign the labour market, if we get housing sorted, if we modernised public services, which are still, I think, back, they're kind of very industrial era public services. 
and if we get to grips with actually taxing wealth properly and looking at how we regulate consumer markets, particularly online markets. So I've tried to bring it all together in a here's what's happening, here's why it's happening and here's what we can do about it. The all new improved autumn statement is expected on November the 17th with current news reports predicting £35 billion in cuts. How disastrous is that for us at the moment in in the context of poverty? Can we overestimate how hard the next few years might be? It's going to be very tough. I mean, there's two big things that I'm looking out for in that autumn statement. The first is what's going to happen with benefits. So are they going to uprate benefits as they should with inflation? Nope. Actually, well, it's actually looking much more hopeful than it was. It's definitely not in the bag, Mm -hmm. but there is a strong group within the Conservative Party who are saying we cannot make the poorest people in the country poorer during the cost of living crisis. So I don't know, but I think we have a chance of it. Mm -hmm. The other, as you said, is spending cuts, because when you look back at the previous round of spending cuts, what you saw was that it was services in deprived areas Mm -hmm. and services serving vulnerable groups who absolutely took the brunt of those spending cuts. And it led to really appalling outcomes in terms of excess deaths and people's lives just being made unimaginably worse because they didn't have the services. It also led to this flip from preventative services to crisis services, which then means people can't get help until they are in a crisis when it is then much more expensive to help people. So if they're going to do spending cuts, can they find a way to do it without replicating that hit to deprived areas and people? And are they going to protect those on the lowest incomes through the benefit system? Those are the two things, I think, that are going to make the next few years kind of more or less catastrophic. This has been fascinating. Where can we follow you on Twitter or other forms of social media to keep up with the work that you're doing? So I'm on Twitter. It's at Helen underscore Barnard. Find me on Twitter and you can get the book on Amazon or Hive or Bookshop or Waterstones, any of those. And there's a link to it in my Twitter bio. Helen, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. It's been really great to talk. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Claudia Brewster, course leader of graphic design, creative advertising and visual communication at the University of Gloucestershire and one of her second year students, Siobhan Smith. Claudia, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Good, very excited to talk to you today about Action for Afghanistan and all the work our students have been doing. Very excited to have you. Siobhan, hello to you as well. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm still okay, but thanks for checking in. Still. (laughs) (laughs) So, as Claudia has just mentioned, you've been working on a design and social impact project with a big message for Action for Afghanistan. So let's start with you telling us what the brief was and how it all came about. Claudia, do you want to go first? Yes. So it all came about through an email from Zara. Um, So Zara is, of course, really big part of Action for Afghanistan. And I know she's already been on the podcast and done a really exciting and really inspiring conversation with you. I don't think Zara Zaidi can be anything but passionate. I think that's just her default. Yeah. Oh my God. It's the most infectious thing talking to her about this because I have to admit, before I spoke to her, I, I don't think I really understood the impact and the, the quantity of what's going on. Mm. So she sent me this incredible email just asking for one poster to be designed 
And I immediately thought, this has got so much more impact here. This is so much what our students talk about in their sessions with us. We think a lot about the ethics and the impact of creative and visual communication Mm -hmm. for all of our courses. Um, So I had a call with Zara. We spoke for hours about everything that was going on and we came up with a brief together. And the idea was they have this fantastic phrase, we are still fighting. And they were organising this Freedom Rally, which is now on the 27th of November. Um, So everyone, make sure you attend that because it will be fantastic. But of course, whenever rallies are being created, they need to be visually communicated so people know it's happening can come and take part. So that's what our designers were tasked with doing, creating the posters, the banners, the visual communication to get other people involved. That was our brief. Oh, what a brief as well. And Siobhan, have you have you ever done anything like this before? I haven't, no. This is definitely the biggest campaign that I've been involved in and really, I suppose, my first live brief, especially of this scale. The seminar that Zara gave when she came into the university was so powerful. You know, most of us were speechless at the end and I think the idea that we were able to just get involved in some way was really important to us. Tell us a little bit about the image you've created, Siobhan, and and how you got there. Show us you're working out. It's like a maths test. <laughs> sure. The image I created shows a, a young woman and um, she's standing defiantly with one arm raised in the air holding a green scarf. The green scarf campaign has already sort of gained some traction in raising support for women and girls in Afghanistan. And so I really wanted to be able to try and incorporate that symbol into the design that I made. She's standing against a black background, which has a sort of bold red circle behind her and blended into the background are some of the headlines um, of newspaper articles documenting some of the issues from the last 12 months in Afghanistan. The colours are representative of the Afghan colour red circle. I wanted to make sure drew attention to, to the woman in the forefront. Zara also touched on how important a woman's hair is mm-hmm. to her. And it's, uh, I really wanted to try and celebrate that in the design. So she has beautiful free-flowing hair around her. I did a lot of research before coming up with the design and looking into the Afghan conflict, looking into the protests that are happening there and the protests in Iran mm. and looking at artists in both countries. There's an amazing female graffiti artist, um, Shamzia Hassani, who creates these really powerful images of strong, ambitious and brave women who are sort of standing up for their freedom to choose. And she was a big inspiration for me when I was developing the design. I didn't want to represent Afghan women as victims. I wanted to show their passion for life and represent the freedom to choose your own future means to them. Yeah, wow. Claudia, could you tell us a little bit about some of the other designs? Of course. So there's other designs. So most of the submissions and the posters that you can now actually use, get printed and bring to the rally um, are from our graphic designers and our creative advertisers. So, of course, that phrase, we are still fighting, made a real impact on lots of these posters that were designed. And what's really wonderful to see is how these symbols have been used in different ways by our different creatives. So, like Siobhan was saying, lots of them have used the hair as being something that's really impactful and something to visualise. Lots of them have used, you know, women in strong positions looking powerful because, of course, we are powerful. And there's something really impactful about the images that the students have created. 
colour has a huge impact as well. So again, when Sarah came in and spoke to us, she spoke about how um, traditional Afghan women's dress is very colourful and what all those colours actually mean and how they signify to Afghan women. So lots of our creatives use that in their posters. Um, and we're really proud of everything that was created. So for those of you that are going to join the rally, please do use these posters. Our students have been so generous in sharing their creativity because they really care about this. The passion really comes across. I've, I've seen the images, obviously, and they're absolutely cracking. And I love yours, Siobhan. It is really, really powerful. I was going to ask you both you. whether it encouraged you to learn more about the plight of women and girls in Afghanistan, but it seems pretty clear it did. Very much. Yeah. I think, as Claudia said, I was aware that there was an issue, but until Zara came in and spoke to us, I don't think we were fully aware of just, just how serious it is. Yeah, I actually think what's going on in Iran as well and the, the women there and that you talked about the hair and how powerful that imagery that's been coming out of Iran has been to motivate us to take notice and to stand up for them as well has highlighted what's going on in Afghanistan right yeah absolutely yeah I think I've been really impressed by all of the students that worked on this project they wanted to address something that was bigger than just outside on our front doorstep Mm -hmm. But they knew that they had to do the research to make sure that they were being responsible with the messages they were sharing. So, of course, none of us are Afghan women. So the research that they did, I was really impressed to see how far that research went and how that was reflected in their poster designs, which is really fantastic to see from early career creatives. Yeah, Very totally. proud. It, I mean, it, it looks good for the future, Siobhan. That's what I'm saying. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously we are inundated with images every single day trying to sell us something or inspire us to get behind a cause. I'm going to start with Claudia and then move on to you, Siobhan. But can you tell us why creativity, design, imagery are so important when it comes to recognition and response to societal issues? I think it's vital. I think we as people respond to visual communication, perhaps more than facts and figures. We know that there are terrible things happening. There are big causes our role as creatives is how to communicate that to your wider audience and get people engaged and empathizing so if i use siobhan's design as an example there the symbols they have impact and recognition so now whenever i see a green scarf i think part of me will always remember action for afghanistan mm-hmm. the clear messaging we are still fighting it's impactful it it brings people it encourages people to think about people in different situations to our own yeah and then changing perspective as well it's really easy to disconnect yourself from big societal topics and i believe that visual communicators graphic designers creative advertisers i think it's our toolkit that shows people what's really happening And Siobhan, we had a little chat off air and you're actually a mature student who has taken a changing career because of what happened in the pandemic and readdressing where where you wanted to be. Is this what drew you to this particular course? Absolutely. It was incredibly poignant sitting there at university listening to Zara's seminar at the university where I'm receiving my higher education. Later on in my life as well, I've made this decision to change my future and to change my direction and start a new career. And hearing about 
those opportunities being taken away from a woman that could very easily have been me. It's all down to the luck of your birth and where you're born as to, to what freedoms and what, what rights you might experience. So I think that's what made it as powerful as it was and what made me really want to get involved is I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I have as a woman in the country that I live in. And I wish I could do more to be able to help women in other parts of the world that maybe don't have those same opportunities. Oh, I'm sure you will. What is key to creating an arresting image? About drawing the focus to the heart of the image, you know, whether that's using a combination of light and dark or, you know, juxtaposition of issues, uh, as I was mentioning Shamsia Hassani. Her images are, are really beautiful contrasts of these beautiful women in, you know, lovely, colourful dress and, you know, them with the kind of dark backgrounds or particular settings that they might be in. And I think that that makes for a really powerful image. Claudia, you're a teacher, is she right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say exactly. Siobhan has got a really good insight into this. And it's something that we talk about a lot on the course in our theory modules and all of the practice that we do. So, for example, our second year, so Siobhan is doing a project called Campaign for Change. So they each get to pick a campaign and work towards that. And our advertisers are doing um, creative problem solving, which is a similar create change through visual communication and I believe it's that it's something that draws attention but I also think it's the call to action mm-hmm. so if you look at Siobhan's post it's a beautiful piece of design but it's also encouraging people to act and change in some way so it's encouraging you to go to the rally or to perhaps change their perception so it might be that people are thinking of women in Afghanistan simply as victims but If you were to look at Siobhan's poster, you would see the strength that really should be celebrated and admired in Afghan women. So, yes, I think it's call to action and those visual communication aspects that Siobhan mentions there. Okay, we've teased the listeners about these posters for quite a while now. Where can people have a nose at the cracking imagery that you've all created? So you can find these on the Action for Afghanistan Twitter You can find them on the University of Gloucestershire website as well. And Action for Afghanistan have now set up a web page where you can go and you can actually download these posts. You can print them and bring them to the rally. So what we're really excited for is on the 27th of November and at the PSVI conference, these posters will be illustrating the cause, just like Siobhan was saying just then. Exactly. So the posters will be displayed at the March in solidarity with Afghan women and girls, which takes place in central London on Sunday, the 27th of November. And you can find all the details for that on the Action for Afghanistan website. And they're also going to be displayed, as you just mentioned there, at the Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict Initiative Conference. What a mouthful. In the UK on the 28th to the 30th of November. So they're going to have a huge global circulation. How does that feel? I just think it's amazing that these issues are gaining such traction and momentum and that they're being spoken about in all of these important places. I really just feel honoured that I was able to be a part of it. Will I see you both at the march on November the 27th? If I'm not at the march in London, we were speaking with some of the students about hopefully creating something locally in our area if people aren't able to travel into London so easily. Oh, I think the more marches, the better. That's a great idea. (laughs) And we're going to have an exhibition of the posters that our students have made on campus at the University of Gloucestershire over that week, just again to show solidarity with the cause and Afghan women. 
and will that be open to the public yes and they should keep an eye on your website then to find out more details on opening hours and stuff like that right yeah so it'll be park campus university of gloucestershire and the whole design center will be having and displaying these posters thank you so so much for chatting with me about this it's such a great project thank Thank you very much much. for having me you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we usually damn the man as we discuss all things women's sport this week we are mostly just going to be damning the man for other reasons first of all let's start with women's sport since that is what i'm actually here to do and send massive commiserations to the england women's rugby team who were just edged by new zealand in the rugby world cup final new zealand beat them by 34 points to 31 an absolutely gutting way to end a tournament in which they've been excellent but I've no doubt they've made a huge impact in terms of the visibility of the sport and the numbers of people rushing to get tickets for the Six Nations next year and tickets for that tournament are indeed available now if you fancy getting involved head over to womens.sixnationsrugby.com for more information now to the main order of the day which is of course the Football World Cup which kicks off on Sunday the 20th of November in Qatar To start off with, I want to highlight the madness of it. And I am 12 years late to this, so apologies because it has been said before that the domestic leagues went into their winter breaks last weekend. So that is a week before the tournament starts and will resume on the 26th of December, a week after the final on the 18th of December. They usually get about a month either side of a World Cup. So, you know, I do wonder if that will make an impact in terms of fitness, But that is really the very least of our concerns when it comes to this World Cup. Let's start at the start for a little rundown in case you're not familiar with all this. Qatar's successful bid was announced in 2010. At the time, it was a huge surprise. It was widely anticipated that Australia would be announced as hosts. Their delegation said afterwards they were surprised, having received assurances that the support was there. Qatar was never a popular choice. It's a tiny country in the middle of the desert. It had no infrastructure to support hosting the tournament and it predated the ownership of Paris Saint-Germain by the Qatari royal family through Qatar Sports Investments, which came a year or so later. And in terms of climate, it just didn't make sense to hold a summer tournament there, which is why it's happening in the winter, disrupting the domestic leagues of a huge number of countries. Since the bid, many of the people who would have been involved in the decision-making process have subsequently been sanctioned for allegations of corruption, including then FIFA president Sepp Blatter. So in order to build the infrastructure, the Qatari government brought in 30,000 migrant workers under the kafala system. That system has since been abolished, though there are conflicting reports about what is happening in practice. It was a system of sponsorship that, by international standards, was tantamount to modern slavery. It meant that employers could take workers' passports away and prevent them from leaving the country, they could prevent them from leaving their jobs, and some were forced to work until their sponsorship debts had been repaid. That's just human trafficking, so, you know. On top of that, the conditions they worked in were often pretty awful, and The Guardian previously collated data from foreign embassies in Qatar, which revealed that 6,500 migrant workers had died in Qatar since the bid was won. Now, not all of those died building the World Cup, the Qatari government has argued, but that is a fucking massive number. 
And if that wasn't enough on the country's human rights record, we know it doesn't treat women very well, and we know that practising homosexuality can be punishable by death, which rather does exclude quite a lot of people. Now, realistically, Qatar will have told its law enforcers to be on their best behaviour, the whole world is watching, and they want to take this opportunity to peddle their wares as the new Dubai, a playground for the rich and famous. They are not going to want anything bad to happen. But is that a chance you'd want to take? You can, of course, take Foreign Secretary, I think he is anyway, James Cleverley's advice, and just be a bit less gay if you want, which seems like a great solution to this conundrum. This World Cup should not have happened and it is wild to me that despite knowing all of this, because it has been public knowledge for years slash ever, it has been allowed to go ahead. There have been opportunities to revisit this decision, not least when allegations of corruption first emerged regarding the World Cup's chosen host sites. No one's hands were tied. And I think that our allyship has been pretty fucking weak, to be honest, in not making more of a fuss about it. You expect to see hypocrisy of governments and sponsors of the tournament. And I'm talking to you, Adidas, Hyundai, Coca-Cola, all of whom have been happy to pinkwash their social media feeds during Pride to sell more overpriced trainers or whatever. None of whom apparently see that endorsing this World Cup shows that they clearly don't give a fuck. It's hard. It is hard. I love football and I love the World Cup. I really do. I support England passionately and I'll be happy if they do well. Gareth Southgate's redemption arc is truly one of the greatest love stories of the 21st century as far as I'm concerned. But I am afraid I cannot support this World Cup. Now I'm not saying that everyone must boycott the World Cup. I'm saying that there are issues surrounding it and if your conscience is okay with participating, you do you. I personally will not be watching and I hope that at least some other fans will feel the same and send a clear message to the people in positions of power that this is not okay. That's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen. Which film in which a man uses the same hand puppet to war a woman and calm a baby did we watch this week? (laughs) This week, we watched 1987's absolute festival of root volume, Three Men and a Baby. (laughs) Couldn't take my eyes off Dunson's hair. It's amazing, isn't it? Like the the root lift he's got is absolutely incredible. And he's got he's got a really long face. Why did they think we yeah. need to make that higher? We need to make his yeah. face taller. He's a tall man, like, and he's got a tall face, and he's got really tall hair. He actually looks like the caricature of himself. <laughs> he does. That gets famous. Totally does. He is literally the personification of the 80s but anyway starring bequiffed 80s megastar trio of tom Selleck, ted danson and steve gutenberg at this point in his career Selleck was riding high on the wave of his role as titular hero thomas magnum in magnum pi just as an aside for fact fans who haven't recently been perusing the Tom Selleck on screen and stage Wikipedia entry. I know, who are they? Uh, (laughs) He he was so famous at this point that his character actually did a crossover into a 1986 episode of Dame Angela Lansbury's Murder, She Wrote. Lads, the episode was called Magnum on Ice. Amazing. (laughs) Quality. Amazing. (laughs) 
Can I just interrupt to say the very first conversation Mickey and I ever had was about Tom Selleck? It She's was one of the this. first. I have mentioned this to Jen. Talk us through it. Talk the listener through it. I can't remember why we were talking about Tom Selleck, but we both... Were... I can. You said, have you ever seen any memes in which Tom Selleck is with a sandwich next to a waterfall? And I said, no. no but there was definitely context <laughs> to why I started talking about Tom Selleck. We've been saying we were really upset that he was like a real gun nut now. And then I sent you... Some excellent photos of Tom Selleck in waterfalls <laughs> eating sandwiches. <laughs> or sometimes just next to a sandwich. Look it up, listeners. Yeah. Selleck waterfall sandwiches. <laughs> it's a thing. Mickey sent it to me, but I don't understand why it exists. And I'm not sure you understand either, do you, Mick? <laughs> I don't need to understand, Jen. I like okay. the mystery. Can I Can I just re-go re, re back? Can I just <laughs> revisit what I said at the start, mm-hmm. which was, this is the very first conversation I had ever had with me. not true. We chatted before that. It wasn't the first conversation. It was new to us. We were new to each other. It's when I thought that, you know, we weren't just going to be colleagues. We were going to be friends. And uh, now I feel bad that it's taken me, what, like eight years to send it to Jen. There's no reasoning <laughs> behind that, Jen. <laughs> I, I forgive you. Did everyone's mum fancy Tom Selleck, by the way? I don't think she did, no. I don't think Kef did. I can't remember her saying it, but from what I know of my mum, I would say yes, almost certainly. I've only ever seen my mum become like full perv, like sit down and calm down on Tom Selleck and Linford Christie. (laughs) (laughs) They are the two that she's gone insane for, like a cat on heat. It was embarrassing. She loves a macho man, doesn't she? She does. Mary really likes the hairy Bee Gees. <laughs> the hairy Bee Gees. I hope that's not a yeah. euphemism for a body part. One of my friends at the gym, I was saying I've been watching Three Men and a Baby, and she said, oh, I used to really fancy Tom Selleck. She's like, but what? I don't like his hairy chest. So I used to pretend he was wearing a T-shirt. <laughs> I love that. Sorry, Jen, we went off track there a bit. He would have been around, I was absolutely gobsmacked to, to do the maths as I was watching it. He would have been around 41 when this film 41, was 41, Jen, 41. <laughs> 41. So my mum there. <laughs> that is a year older than me. But having done quite a lot of Google image searching this morning, I can confirm that he has literally always looked about 55 years old. I think the Tash certainly does lend an air of authority. Can we, we can agree on that, right? So do you think he looks older than 41? Yes, don't you? No, no not at all. No, no. I think he I think looks, he looks about, 41. I think he's always looked like a, a, a handsome, well put together man and kind of still does. Even though he's 107. I think he's literally always looked the same age, which is about 55. No, he looks way younger. Like he still looks about 55, but he looks about 55 then. As I said, it must be the tash. You, you know when men leave their bow ties hanging down like that, <laughs> right? Right. Tom Selleck is the human equivalent of that. That's true. And we, we'll be talking more about bow ties when we finally let Jen finish the introduction. <laughs> Rated or dated, Tom Selleck. <laughs> Let's move on to dancing. The caricature of himself. He was also a family favourite at this time, enjoying huge success as Sam Malone in Cheers. And Gutenberg was fresh from classics such as Police Academy and Short Circuit. The trio were a match made in middle America box office heaven. And the film, a remake of earlier French effort, Trois Hommes et un Coffin, you're welcome, largely the same, (laughs) but the baby smokes in that one, was catnip. (laughs) to cinema goers and it became the highest grossing film of the year in the US and indeed of the next three until it was surpassed by Pretty Woman in 1990 
Wowzers. I know. I was not expecting that. They're their own people, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah. As I said, sadly. They are their own people. (laughs) They are their own people. But who could resist a tale of toxic masculinity directed by Leonard Nimoy, a.k.a. Mr. Spock? Again. What the fuck? (laughs) Let's look at the plot. The story follows lads, lads, lads. Peter, Michael and Jack, played by Selick, Gutenberg and Danson, respectively. Peter is a successful architect embroiled in a non-exclusive relationship with Rebecca. Peter, despite apparently being 80s rich and 9,000 years old, inexplicably still lives with his two buddies, Michael, a successful satirist for a New York publication, and Jack, a jobbing actor in a Manhattan penthouse. The chaps are footloose and fancy-free, and they like to partay and knob around. (laughs) That penthouse... Mm. It reminds me of the crystal maze. It's got like different zones. This is the glass zone. <laughs> this is the film zone. This, this is this, the sports yeah, this zone. Yeah, looks like it's outside, but is it? Yeah. <laughs> but nobbing around lands Jack in hot water when the mysterious Sylvia leaves a baby he didn't know he had, Mary, on the bachelor pad's doorstep. She's terribly sorry, but she really can't cope. It's his turn. Luckily for him, he's off shooting in Turkey, doubly lucky, since he's also unwittingly agreed to take delivery of some heroin on behalf of the least scary (laughs) drug dealers I've ever seen cinematically depicted. Rather than call social services or the police with regards to either of these issues, the three men must now learn how to undertake basic tasks like changing a nappy and returning drugs to their rightful owners. Hilarity ensues, that is, until Sylvia returns with the worst English accent this side of Dick Van Dyke and the glibest (laughs) of all apologies for dumping her baby on them. She's ready to take charge of her child again. But what of our newly responsible dads, cue credits, and the most tantalising of sequel prospects? As already discussed, the film was a huge hit at the box office. Less so with the critics, who were kind of about it. But that's what you get when you make a film starring Selick, Gutenberg and Danson, I guess. This is a basic bitcherama, cinematically speaking. And as you will have come to expect, I'm okay with that. <laughs> There's a lot wrong with this film. And not least, the length of Selick's shorts, as Mickey pointed out while watching it. We're a centimetre away from the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, but uh, in the French one, they were probably just naked from the waist. That is true. Oh, they? They're all just Winnie the Poohing around the house. <laughs> I am, nonetheless, I'm going to make a couple of opening arguments in its defence. I think it makes a few valid points about the emptiness of some versions of masculinity, about the idea that women will inherently know what to do with children, that caring for a newborn baby is fucking harrowing, and the expectation we put on women to just put their lives on hold to undertake this work. There are more, but we'll get into that. I had seen this film a thousand times before. Three Men and a Little Lady, that's the 1990 sequel to this, which is vastly superior I have to say because it stars Sheila Hancock and Fiona Shaw but whatever that was the first film I ever owned on VHS and it was a Christmas present from my brother it was like the first proper present he'd ever bought me so I have to level with you all about this I do have enormous affection for this franchise Hannah Mickey how familiar were you with this film I'd seen it a couple of times before but almost all of them when I was probably under the age of 20. I don't think I'd really watched this as a fully functioning adult before. I've seen it a few times as well. And probably like Hannah, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if like in my late teens, but I've seen it a lot. 
I'm interested, Jen, that you went straight into defensive mode. I think it's utterly charming and I think it has a lot of positives. I mean, it's got a lot of flaws as well, but I, I was I did not have an awful time. I am slightly shocked to hear that, but I'll only be more shocked if Hannah says she didn't hate it. I actually had quite a fun time watching oh. it, but and part of that was because it's really fucking stupid. Yes. And yeah. And like, for example, the drugs plot, like, oh, well, we can get to that in depth. But when, when at the end, I don't think like, we can Jack do depth out, about that. Anna. <laughs> Jack sneaks out of the house dressed as a woman, right, as part of their escape plan uh, with the baby, dressed as a pregnant woman with the with the baby in a sling. And and next minute he's managed to, I don't know what, steal a taxi that's got a car seat. <laughs> like there are just huge leaps of plot that are so daft. But I agree that. It shows that, you know, when he says to his girlfriend, oh, do you want to look after the baby? And she's like, no, fuck off. And and she goes, why are you asking me? And he goes, because you're a woman. And she goes, no, fuck yeah. off. I'm going on a date with this guy. Bye. And Ted Danson's mum also mm-hmm. says, no, you're on your own, son. And although I think actually they were both probably plot devices to ensure that they had to keep looking after the baby at the same time, that is a positive message. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, because you said toxic masculinity in your intro, Jen. Yeah. And while I think their lifestyles are like bachelor and, you know, the revolving door of women is a bit like, Ugh, what is quite interesting is the women seem to be doing exactly the same thing. Well, kind of. One of them comes out crying. That's it. So the thing right at the beginning, when they're having their party, they're having their like raucous house party where they've got people there serving food. <laughs> well, it's Peter's birthday, amusing. either his late 30s, early 40s, or as, as you'd have it, his 67th. Yeah. Basically, a woman sort of comes on to him and he's like, oh, yeah, no, we're not serious, me and Rebecca. We're kind of like, yeah, whatever, sort of thing. And then a man comes over, he's like, Rebecca's looking super hot. Are you guys still together? And he's like, yeah, very much so, quite serious, actually. Like, like knob off and yeah. get off my territory. I was a bit like, oh, okay. But he's doing that, but she is dating other people. Well, that is later revealed. And in fairness, I thought that was a nice touch. I liked that they did that. I thought we did a decent job at kind of challenging those perceptions of men and women in relation to relationships and and children and stuff like that. And I think they do a few rug pulls like that where you think, oh, here we go. Because there's a bit where Sylvia gets back and no one says, why did you abandon your baby? Is it a good idea to give her back to you? No one asks that question. (laughs) Fair (laughs) do. Yeah, are you Um, all right now? Before (laughs) She's saying, oh, you know, they're like, oh, it's really hard. It's really hard. And I I shout at the telly and she's doing it all on your own. And then one of them goes, and with three of us, you're on your own. And I was like, all right, Mm. fair enough. Fair enough, three men and a baby. Well done. That is a pretty small amount of heroin to cost however much they were touting that it cost, though. In all honesty. I'm going to have to take your word for how it, cheap heroin was in like the 80s. What is the point of that storyline? It was in the French one and they've just, you know, gone with it. And I, I think it really detracts from the film, actually, because all of the fun stuff is when they're wrestling with trying to be parents. It's very French, though, isn't it? Oh, there is some drugs yeah. that we need to find too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. like that. What? <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit... I am on my period and, and I used to cry at stuff anyway and, and also like since having Lyra I cry at like literally everything. But I was actually on the verge of tears. Was it because his shorts weren't a centimetre shorter? <laughs> I was just it was the oh, disappointment Jen. of not seeing Tom Selleck's wang, that was what did it. No, I honestly <laughs> I actually found it like a slightly emotional experience, which made me then roll straight into three men and a little lady to have a look at that as well. I don't think I've seen this film 
as an adult. I think probably the last time I saw it, I was probably a teenager. And I have always thought, out of the two, this is the worst one. But I actually enjoyed it way more than I remember enjoying it. I do feel the need to point out, it is still quite sexist in parts. Like, the idea that that any time you carry a baby, that just flocks of women will just run towards you that a man with a baby is just cat I think in the 80s maybe it was a thing I think it still happens yeah Alan Cochran used to do a joke about how if his wife died and it had to be death he couldn't divorce her then he would be really popular in the park and he's like I don't want that to happen but it's just a fact I have to face because when I'm out with my kid on my own like women kind of look and yeah I mean and I do think that's sexist Hannah but I think it's sort of that internalized misogyny that women have that social conditioning of oh man with a baby must try to mate with him I remember someone who I went on a date with once telling me that like if he was with a child or was carrying flowers or like to a lesser extent had a dog he would get more attention from passing women. And it is a technique that I can tell you from my many years of using dating apps. Loads of men on dating apps Mm -hmm. post pictures of themselves with children. And this is the thing that I always find sort of funny slash really annoying is that they always write underneath, not my child. (laughs) I think going back to Hannah's point that there is sexism there as well, I like part of me at the end, and I didn't go straight into three men and a little lady, Jen, so you might be able to disabuse me of this notion. But I was like, oh, Sylvia, don't move in with them. You're going to just end up being their caretaker. Well, no, I don't think that is what happens, actually. They seem to have like a fairly even kind of situation in the second one. They all kind of like get along, do their jobs and uh, and, and look after Marion. I mean, ahead of their time. I think everyone Mm. lives in Portland like that now, don't they? Everyone's in a polycule. (laughs) A polycule. Wowzers. Yeah, New York's interesting, isn't it? It's that New York of very certain films that is only populated by white people. As New York famously is, (laughs) particularly in the 80s. Yeah, it's just like, oh, yeah, it's it's not very diverse. They're quite wealthy, aren't they? Why does he still sleep in something that looks like a bunk bed? That really bothered me. No wonder he's not getting laid because it's just like, what the fuck is going on in your bedroom, mate? It looks like a teenager's. I bet though, I bet you could crack one of his sheets in half. That's oh. what I'm saying. Also, his pictures are awful. Yeah. Have you ever been wooed by a hand puppet, Hannah? <laughs> oh, I mean, successfully, several times. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. There was one thing that I wanted to say and it might seem a bit weird. But you see an awful lot of that baby naked all the time. And I wonder now whether they would still do that in a film. I don't know. I did also notice that, Hannah. Mm. I did think, oh, I don't know that that would be something that would happen today. Only from from like the point of view of, you know... Child safeguarding, etc, etc. Child safeguarding, not from a prudiness point of view. But also perhaps like issues of consent now that Mm. that child, you know... It's still a conversation worth having, I think, Mm. yeah. And almost as seriously as the point Hannah's just raised is the fact that about halfway through the film, Tom Selleck's character, Peter, just inexplicably starts wearing bow ties with every outfit. Presumably so he can untie them and look kind of James Bond cool at some point. There's three outfits in a row and then we never see another bow tie again. It's utterly baffling. I'm I'm baffled by that. He goes back to him in the second film, don't worry. Okay, I'm I'm not a big fan of the bow tie because obviously it restricts the amount of hairy t-shirt we can see. So... <laughs> I did notice when they're in the bit where they take Mary swimming. I was like, fucking hell, 
hairier in the 80s, wasn't it? Mm, Is Ted Danson in a unitard in that scene as well? (laughs) (laughs) It is the most 80s film ever. (laughs) God, you must have had to clean pool filters way more often than the 80s. Three of them. I think Gutenberg's pretty hairy as well. No one knows where he went after this franchise. He's just disappeared. It's, um, yeah, it's weird. He's just at the bottom of a pool in the filter. Yeah, he's just clogged. He's clogged a pool somewhere in Miami. But the only reference I think I've heard to him in 20 years is in that scene in Glow where she reads the wrong part. Um, And uh, they say, you're not going to be playing that part. That part is going to be played by Steve Gutenberg. (laughs) He was on Dancing with the Stars, apparently. I looked him up. And I think he's in Sharknado 4. I think that's also in his... uh, doing well then. That's good to know, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Danson. Still got the same root lift. Hasn't lost it. It's still there. It's, it's amazing. Natural. I don't know it's just a natural lift. Defies Power gravity. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly we all had quite a nice time watching this, but the question must, alas, be asked. Rated or dated? It's... Clearly, clearly dated. <laughs> very, very dated. And that date is 1980s. But rated. I'm going to rate it. I had a lovely time. Yeah, I mean, for me to say rated suggests that I would recommend that people watch it. And in truth, unless like I'm going to edit the podcast so that you just say, <laughs> I would recommend that people watch it. <laughs> I think if you're like me and you have a kind of, you know, fun, morbid, interesting things that have the most stupid plots ever, <laughs> then yeah, come on in, the water's warm. But I don't well, think Harry. I, in truth I could say rated. <laughs> so I'm going to say dated. I think that it is quite clearly dated. But I also think that a film like this is not meant to be a masterpiece in terms of like critical acclaim, is it? It, it, it does what it says on the tin. I don't think asking the bar to be high enough that they explain how Jack stole a taxi with a baby seat <laughs> in it. I don't think that makes it a masterpiece. I think it just needs to make some form of narrative sense. Hard disagree. I don't think films need to make <laughs> any kind of narrative sense. So, I, given that I think you can't really compare this with like Taxi Driver, can you? So, <laughs> so I'm going to say rated. Anyway, who's up next? It's me next, and we're going to be watching Three Men and a Little Lady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not. <laughs> we're going to be watching a film from the very past, 1942's Cat People. Oh, that's interesting. I've picked a film for 1942 for the week after. Oh, we're in the past. Oh, thanks, lads. Two 1942s in a row. You like cats, Jen? It'll be fine. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs> 